This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. Sleep hot. Mattress Firm's sleep experts can match you with a cooling mattress from the Temper Breeze Collection from Tempur-Pedic, so you can experience measurably cooler sleep all night. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day Sale. Sleep at night. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, how politicians talk to voters through video games. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. This week on the show, politics. You may have heard by now there's an election coming up in less than two weeks. And this week, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they squared off in a presidential debate. I'm Kristen Welker of NBC News, and I welcome you to the final 2020 presidential debate between President Donald J. Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden. Tonight's Later on, we'll get into one subject of the debate that is ever-present in every presidential election. And we'll talk about how it's playing out a little differently in this very strange year. But first, a different kind of political outreach than what happened this week at the debate. It happened in a space other than primetime TV. That space is called a Twitch. Not trying to be condescending, just a piece of advice. No, yeah, no, it's, it's, just called yeah. A, it's called a Twitch stream. Okay, it's not called perfect. a Twitch. That, no, correct me, please, yeah. All right, it's a Twitch stream. The platform itself is called Twitch. Anyway, this week, political star and Democratic U.S. House member Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she played a video game called Among Us, and she streamed it on Twitch for the world to see. And she used this event, playing a popular video game in real time, to talk about voting. I'm voting early in person here in New York because I want want my ballot... I want my vote to be counted day of and in New York. Yeah, forget the debates. This might be the future of political outreach. To explain what Twitch is, what a Twitch stream is, what Among Us is, and whether any of this can affect our politics, I called up Cecilia D'Anastasio. She covers the gaming industry and gaming culture for Wired. Tell us what viewers saw when they watched this Twitch stream this week. What did it look like? So if you're watching her stream, what you saw was her in a little box on the bottom and the video game appearing behind her. So you were watching her play with some of the top Twitch streamers out there. Hey, everyone. Oh. Hey. Oh. Hi. Pokimane, who has 6 million followers. Myth, who wow. has 7 million followers. Uh, Dr. Lupa with 4 million and they were all playing this game together, all trying to figure out who the imposter was. It's like mafia. You tried to figure out who's sus for anyone who might not know. Uh, actually, was <laughs> AOC was uh, the first imposter, and she oh. was she was so upset and so funny to watch. I, I can't believe I reported myself. Considering her position, I understand why she would say this, but she said that she hates lying. And that's one of the things that the imposter has to do in this game. It was so entertaining to watch her kind of fumble through that and eventually kind of pick up the game mechanics and get really good at it. Nice. All right. So then what was Ocasio-Cortez trying to accomplish with this? Was it at all tied to politics? It was. Her goal was to get out the vote, to inspire other people to vote. And she did a really good job doing that because she knew her audience she didn't sort of like look soulfully into the camera and plead with people to please, for God's sake, get Donald Trump out of office. Please vote for Joe Biden. I mean, part of why she's so relatable is that 
this is her. Like, this is her culture. Like, AOC is actually a gamer as well on the side. Huh. AOC plays League, so I think. I, my mind was blown when she tweeted about I'm getting silver. But yeah, I haven't played I, I, I it so long. I haven't played it. It was clear that she knows about Twitch culture and what was sort of expected from her as she was entertaining her audience. And she was playing the game and she was being relatable. And part of that, I think, was her not being particularly preachy, which I think is a totally fine way to be approaching something as important as voting. But in this context, I feel that she really did fit the medium with the way that she was engaging with the game and with the other players. Okay, so you would call this a, a success? Hugely successful. I think it was huh. universally beloved. Wow. You know, what? I'm trying to figure out what I can compare something like Ocasio-Cortez's Twitch stream of her playing a game called Among Us, what I can compare it to in terms of more traditional political outreach. Like it's, it's not like a campaign event. It's not really a fireside chat. It's not a big stump speech in a stadium. What do you think is the most comparable kind of political outreach? <laughs> the first thing I think of is that it's like a politician going to their like local sports stadium and just like playing a game of baseball and they happen to be pretty good at it that's the thing that i can think of and you know people who are in the area get cheap tickets and they can go and attend and cheer them on i like that maybe there's a little talking maybe there's a little schmoozing but for the most part people are like "Hmm, i wonder what it's like to watch my representative play baseball yeah what do you think it says that, like, in the same week we have this debate on primetime TV happen, which feels increasingly out of touch, we also have someone like Ocasio-Cortez reaching potential voters through a platform maybe half the country hadn't even heard of yet? So my personal opinion on this differs a little bit. I'm not sure that the debate format is out of touch. I mean, tens of okay. thousands of people watch the debate on Twitch. Millions. Well, on Twitch. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Pe- okay. People love watching the debates on Twitch and love watching their favorite Twitch personalities sort of commentate over the debate. And that can be people they typically watch playing first-person shooter games or even people they tune in to watch political commentary. There's a streamer, Hassan Piker, who helps set up um, AOC's stream and he gets just so many viewers with his very far left political commentary on the debates live. Really? Yes. So then I guess just juxtaposing the actual debate between Biden and Trump this week and something like Ocasio-Cortez's live stream, do you think her Twitch stream represents a certain kind of future in terms of how politicians talk to folks? That's a really good question. I hope so. I think it's really important Mm. for people to interact with their politicians and to feel like their politicians really represent them. Gaming is an increasingly important um, sort of cultural power. I mean, so many people play video games. Almost every young person will have played a video game at some point in their lives. And AOC is very representative of of that culture. That's why she's become so much of a celebrity. And if you know, more people are elected into office who really reflect the values and interests of their, of of the people they're representing, then I do think this will become increasingly popular. Yeah. You know, it's hard to overstate how many people are involved in gaming. I was seeing some figure this week that 3 billion people across the world play video games. 
And so then, you know, when there's coverage of Ocasio-Cortez doing voter outreach via Twitch stream this week, it's kind of like, oh, good for her. But also, why aren't more politicians doing this? Are other politicians on Twitch doing this kind of outreach through this platform? Yeah, so... Bernie Sanders actually had 50,000 viewers for a fireside chat about COVID earlier this year on his Twitch channel. Donald Trump has a Twitch channel where they've streamed some campaign rallies, but it was briefly suspended for violating policies against hateful content. So uh, politicians do have Twitch streams, and for the most part, they're not playing games on them. I think that's Hmm. probably a smart move, because if you are kind of an older politician and you're just kind of getting on to play a video game you might not have heard of or might not have played that often and you don't really understand twitch culture or gaming culture it could come off pretty embarrassing or out of touch yeah yeah you know this was a nice feel-good story this week you know political celebrity uses platform to have fun and play games and also talk about voting but also when i think of someone like ocasio cortez a woman of color a lot of times people like her face racism and misogyny and attacks online, sometimes in spaces like Twitch. How do those two things juxtapose? Like, does Ocasio-Cortez doing things like this make it better in that regard? And how bad is it? That's a great question. Women and minorities face disproportionate harassment on Twitch and in games culture, full stop. AOC had a very robust moderation effort behind her stream. So did Ilan Omar. So there were, so not only were there bots who were, you know, filtering certain words and slurs and things like that, there were also human moderators making sure that the chat was um, appropriate and respectful. And there were hundreds of chat messages per minute. So that's a pretty impressive task. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I remember a few years ago, when politicians began to use Instagram more. And I kind of felt mad about it because for the longest time, Instagram felt like this very pure and safe space. And it was just pretty photos of people's kids and their dogs and their pretty food. And I didn't want politics to get in that space. Are there some Twitch devotees, Twitch streamers who were like, keep the politicians out of here? Yeah, very much so. And that's a wider movement In the games industry as well, large publishers produce video games that do sort of hint at political messages every now and then. And there's often pushback on that from gamers who feel like gaming is their safe space, the place where they don't have to deal with things from the outside world. But games are commodities and platforms are commodities. And I don't think this expectation that there should be any sort of purity, that they should exist separately from real life, um is I don't think that's realistic. I think also Mm. that it's good for us to be discussing um, things that are really important to us in our sort of escapist media. Thanks again to Cecilia D'Anastasio. She covers the gaming industry and gaming culture for Wired. All right, coming up, a look at the winners and losers of this pandemic economy. This This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. 
The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. In any great story, there's a moment that sparks your curiosity tells you there is more to uncover. How how did this happen? How did we get here? That's where Embedded comes in. We are NPR's home for documentary journalism. Immersive and intimate stories. I was stone-cold speechless. Nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. Voting is crucial. And I don't give a damn how you look at it. Is this a man? It was we, the people. The land of the free and the home of the brave. Not we, the white male citizens. Misrepresentative democracy. A new series about voting in America from NPR's Throughline. Listen now. So in the official topic list for Thursday night's debate, the economy wasn't actually on the list. But it is kind of hard to not talk about the economy right now if you're running for president, especially in light of the coronavirus. And both Donald Trump and Joe Biden, they had very different ideas about how they would bring the economy back to what it was before. We have to open our country. We're not going to have a country. You can't do this. We can't keep this country closed. This is a massive country with a massive economy. People are losing their jobs. You need to be able to, for example, if you're going to open a business, have social distancing within the business. You need to have, if you have a restaurant, you need to have plexiglass dividers so people cannot infect one another. That made me wonder, how is the economy doing right now? Really? So to answer that question, I called up a friend of the show, NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley. Scott Horsley, hardest working man in show business. Hello, how are you? I am well, Sam. It's good to be with you. Likewise, likewise. Um, You know, in this pandemic economy, there have been winners and losers. Winners like the housing market and streaming services like Netflix, all the big tech companies, which we'll dig into more a bit later. But there have been a lot of losers as well. The airlines, restaurants, live entertainment, movies, the childcare industry, that list goes on and on. Clearly, in this pandemic economy, there are a lot more losers than winners. You know, but after eight months of shutdowns and unemployment, what should we expect to happen next? Will things get better? Will they get worse? Uh, And how, in this very unusual election, will this even more unusual economy play out with voters? You cover the economy. First question (laughs) for you. you Such as it is. Yeah. If you had to describe the state of this economy... In uh, in three words, what would those three words be? Climbing back slowly. Well, that's inspiring. Explain what you mean by that. Well, in March and April of this year, we 
slam the brakes on the economy in a desperate bid to put the brakes on the pandemic. Uh, but in, the, in, in doing so, we threw 22 million Americans out of work. Yeah. And then in the five months that followed, we slowly started to reopen uh, in fits and starts, and about half of those workers went back to work. Okay. But now we've seen the job gains slow. Uh, they were slower in September than in August. They were slower in August than July. They were slower in July than June. So we've sort of been decelerating, and we've still got about 11 million people who haven't yet gone back to work and who may not wow. be going back to work anytime soon. So it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. We, we are better than we were in the spring lockdown, but we're a long way from healthy and the rebound has kind of lost some air. Yeah. So this is what I find so confusing about this recession, this pandemic recession. In any other climate or time, if 11 million people were still out of work, it would be a major crisis. But we've kind of not had to really come to grips with that amount of unemployment because for months now, everyone's been getting the check, you know? Well, they were uh, but over up, time, until, they up were. until the end of, yeah. end of July. And, and many people are still getting some benefits, but a lot less help than they were getting in the early months of the, the pandemic. But you're absolutely right. We had a huge outpouring of federal aid with the CARES Act passed at the end of March. Most of that money started going out in April. In April, personal income for the country actually rose. Wow. Even though that wow. was the absolute trough of the, the job hit. And yet aggregate national income actually rose because the federal government was just dumping money out of helicopters. And that did help to kind of paper over the worst of the downturn. Uh, and that continued right up until the end of July. And in fact, a lot of people who were out of work were getting more in unemployment benefits than they had mm -hmm. been getting when they were on the job, because many of the people who've been uh, affected by this are folks at the kind of lower rungs of the income ladder. But most of those savings are now yeah. gone. So this is what I want to talk about a little more in detail. What's been the most surprising thing for me is to see how detached the stock market seems to be from the financial reality of a lot of Americans. We've seen the market go up and up and up in spite of these millions of folks still not having jobs. And, you know, certain parts of the stock market, like tech stocks, they've done incredibly well. What does it mean? What does it say about the economy to see stocks do so well in spite of everything else? Yeah. Well, we always say that the, the stock market is not the real economy. It's a piece of the real economy. But that, that disconnect does seem even more striking in recent months. You know, early on, the stock market was very much mirroring yeah. uh, our anxieties about the pandemic. We saw a very steep slide in the stock market during the springtime. But we've also seen a really rapid recovery. But it, it has been a fairly narrow recovery. Most of the gains in the stock market have been driven by just a, a relative handful of big technology companies. Google's benefiting from advertising sales. Amazon is obviously benefiting as people do more and more of their shopping online. Facebook is doing well. Uh, companies that make the software that folks who are having to telecommute are doing fine. But it does seem like kind of a head scratcher when you say Seems uh, the S&P <laughs> is hitting new highs at a time when you know we still have unemployment. Yeah. Well, anything take these tech stocks down. You know, we just saw this <laughs> week that Google is facing a big lawsuit from multiple entities kind of claiming that they might be a monopoly. 
Yeah, doesn't Google's, seem like Google's, that slowed down their stock shit either. Google's parent company rose on on news of that complaint, or despite the news of that complaint. Yeah, apparently Wall Street was not exactly rattled at the prospect that uh, uh. Alphabet might be broken up. So another thing I'm noticing is that the economy doesn't seem to be the number one issue for voters this campaign cycle. I think that a lot of folks are just seeing whatever's happening with the economy as a fluke caused by the pandemic, but the chatter seems to be around the pandemic itself or other stuff. How do you think America is thinking about the economy when it comes to how they're going to vote? Or is there any way to know? Well, it's a really good question. And in the the polling data, most people still say the economy is the number one issue, but that doesn't necessarily square with what they say they're voting for. And and Mm. that's not altogether unusual. So, uh, you know, in terms of people, for example, who support President Trump and who say the economy is their number one concern... Uh, you might say, well, why would you support the guy who's presided over, you know, 22 million job losses? And yeah. the answer might be, well, we thought we had a pretty good economy until the pandemic struck and we're giving the president a pass on the pandemic because mm-hmm. we don't think mm-hmm. that's just an outlier that he had nothing to do with. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you might have someone who's backing Joe Biden who says – that's uh, the economy's number one for them. And they say, well, it's because of the mismanagement of the pandemic that the recovery hasn't been stronger. So, you know, you could make an argument for either candidate and you could say it's based on the economy. And it kind of just depends on what snapshot of the economy you're looking at or how much, how much role you think the administration's had in either the good economy we had before the pandemic or the kind of lousy economy we've had during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. As someone who covers the economy and has been doing so for a while, what has been the most surprising factoid tidbit thing about this pandemic economy that you've seen in your reporting? Well, I have been surprised at the rapid rebound in people buying stuff. You know, we're buying Hmm. as much stuff now as we were before the pandemic. Really? Sales of goods have now gone back to being even higher than they were back in February before we had coronavirus here in the United States. Well, you know, some of the spending, at least for me, is kind of just being bored at the house. I couldn't do what I used to do. You're looking for the small joys. And for most Americans, buying something feels good, feels nice, makes you a little happy. It kind of just brought joy. I mean, like, is there something to be said about the psychology of buying in this pandemic moment? I don't know. Scott, are you buying for fun more now? (laughs) Well, but the interesting thing is, you know, as you – the wealthier you are, the less of your money typically goes for stuff and more of it goes – Well, then I'm impoverished because I've just been (laughs) buying stuff, Scott. Well, (laughs) you you tend to spend more on experiences and services Mm. and uh, travel and things like that. And Mm. and so actually wealth. Wealthy people are spending less. You know, people people mm-hmm. for whom uh, services and experiences are a bigger part of their budget, their spending has not begun to recover to where it was before the uh, pandemic. All right, last question. Weirdest thing you bought in the midst of the pandemic? <laughs> um, gosh. I guess the weirdest thing I bought was 
I was actually forced to sign up for home internet service when this all started. You did for, not have home internet service for, before, for about Mr. The first, for about the first two weeks, I kind of limped along, you know, using the hotspot on my cell phone to try to do all my, all my reporting and stuff. But I said, you know, if we're going to be here working from home for a long haul, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bite the bullet and I'm going to get home internet. Scott, <laughs> Scott. Yeah, welcome to the 1990s, they were telling me. Thanks again to NPR's chief economics correspondent, Scott Horsley. Uh, I'm glad you now have internet, Scott. My goodness. Listeners, stay with us. Coming up, we'll play Who Said That? with a very, very special guest, a celebrity, you might say, my Aunt Betty. The Embedded Podcast brings you eye-opening reporting. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Immersive journalism. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Personal stories. I was scared. Like, I can't protect you. We are NPR's home for documentary storytelling. Find Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. NPR's editorial independence and integrity is non-negotiable. It's the reason why so many listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup. You'll get analysis and insight from the world's best correspondents. Listen to 1A's Friday News Roundup, only from NPR. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the next episode of Louder Than a Riot, the 20-year fight to clear the name of former No Limit rapper Mac Phipps. Because me and my brother was close. The years that he lost, that's some of the best years of his life. He done lost. For me, it, it just hurts. Listen now to Louder Than a Riot, the new podcast from NPR Music. My next guest is a very special person in my life, my Aunt Betty. Hello, Aunt Betty. Hi, Sam. How are you? Where am I talking to you from? I am actually at work, and I closed my door and put a sign up that said, Do Not Disturb. (laughs) Well, thanks for that. (laughs) For the first time ever in the history of this show, we are asking you to be our special guest for my favorite game called Who Said That? Yes, and I'm a little nervous. So nervous that when I told you we were going to do this, you asked me to give you the answers in advance. I just asked for hints. I didn't ask for all the answers. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no answers for you. Uh, But the great thing about this game, especially when there's just one contestant, is that you're going to win no matter what. Well, just be gracious and remember that I'm old. (laughs) <laughs> yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Before we start the game, um, did you see the story this week that Netflix stock is down? I did not. Their stocks are down because they didn't meet their forecasted numbers of like new subscribers. So they said that they got 300,000 fewer new global subscriber additions than they forecast. And because of that, Netflix shares fell this week on one day 6% after just a few hours. I'm surprised 
surprised that they didn't see that coming and do a reforecast on that. Exactly. But here's the crazy part. Uh, guess how many additions of new subscribers they had this past quarter? Probably millions. I have no idea. Yeah. So they added 2.2 million new subscribers this far into the pandemic, and that was bad for them. Because I can't they were believe expecting it. 10 million. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, to the game. You know how it goes. I share three quotes from the week of news, and you got to guess who said it. Okay, I'm praying. <laughs> you don't have to pray over this. <laughs> All right, here's the first quote. I made an embarrassingly stupid mistake. Believing I was off camera... I apologize to my wife, family, friends, and co-workers. Who said that? I don't know his name, but he's a CNN anchor. He yeah. exposed himself doing a, uh, a virtual call or something like <laughs> yes. that. Yes, Jeffrey Tubin, <laughs> uh, writer for The New Yorker, CNN legal analyst. He is under investigation and suspended from his job after he unknowingly exposed himself to his colleagues on a Zoom call. After this happened... All of his coworkers on the Zoom call just kind of played it cool and kept going like nothing happened. Isn't that crazy? You would think someone would say, hey, dude, you got an audience. <laughs> <laughs> well, and then this is the worst part. Instead of just saying, I'm sorry, I screwed up. His excuse was, I thought I had muted the Zoom video. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there's a time and place to do things. When you're on a <laughs> business call, probably isn't the best time to do it. <laughs> You got that one. Uh, this next quote, tell me what famous movie actor we're talking about. This is one of the stars of The Avengers. He was in the news this week. One of his co-stars said this about him. No matter how hard it gets, stick your chest out, keep your head up, and handle it. Tupac. You got this. Your family, friends, colleagues, and everyone who's ever crossed paths with you knows your heart and your worth. Who are they talking about? I don't have a clue. Um, Who's your favorite star of the Avengers? And I've watched all the movies. I, I know you watched them all. Thanos is my favorite, but... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like the villain. I don't know. I'm going to just tell you because you'll never get it. Chris Pratt. You didn't hear about this? I did hear about that. I, it just didn't click with So what did you know about the story? Tell me what you know about it. Oh, please don't put me on the spot because I remember reading it. And the reason I remembered it is because I thought it was Chris Pine, who I love. So I immediately <laughs> looked up Chris Pine. So I'm sorry, Chris Pratt. So. <laughs> you, like everyone else on the Internet, uh, picks other Chris's over Chris Pratt. Um, so you're mostly Facebook, but you've probably seen this meme as well. People will share on Twitter, like, four pictures of four different things. So, like, four different candy bars. And you basically have to say, this one of the four is my least favorite. Right, right. This week, someone shared four images of four famous Chris's. It was Chris Pine, Chris Pratt, Chris Evans, and Chris Hemsworth. And everyone said, well, Chris Pratt has to go. And instead of oh. just saying, this is a funny internet joke... All of his co-stars and family and friends, like, came to his defense. Wow, they really took that kind of way too seriously. I mean, it's the Internet. Who takes it that seriously? Exactly. Also, everyone knows we're right. Chris Pratt is the worst Chris. Chris Pine is the best Chris. <laughs> I love his eyes. What can I say? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Chris Pine, if you're listening, call on Betty. She wants to talk to you. <laughs> that last point, I'll just give it to you. Oh, don't, just because you love me. I give everybody extra points every <laughs> week. It's okay. All right, here's the last quote. Tell me who we're talking about. This is actually a fill-in-the-blank. 
Blank taught us, I love you, you love me. That's one of the first songs I remember. Who are we talking about? Mr. Rogers? No, close. Another children's show, but it was an animal, a purple animal. Oh, Barney. Barney, yeah. All right, so that quote actually comes from Daniel Kaluuya. He is set to produce a new movie about Barney, and it's going to be a little bit darker than what we've seen before. Okay. You know who that is? I do not. I'm sorry. You know his face. You know his face. I want you to Google it right now. He was the guy in Get Out. Okay. <laughs> you don't know who I'm talking I about. Mean to me. I don't even know what Get Out is. I'm you sorry. haven't seen Get Out? No. I failed you. I do failed I have to you. watch that? That's a modern classic. Well, maybe when you're, we're together again, we'll watch it together. Well, there you go. On that note, you won the game. Congratulations. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to. <laughs> <laughs> Who are you going to dedicate your win to? I'm going to dedicate this win to all the other uninformed people who listen to you on NPR. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you're going to dedicate it to Chris Pine. <laughs> Him too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this was delightful. Thanks for playing. Thanks for letting me listen. I spent half the morning uh, going through current events trying to get this long list of possible people, and you didn't ask any of them. Oh, my goodness. What did you look at? I looked at Cher when she raised $2 million for the campaign. I looked at Pope Francis for Silver Union's endorsement. And, of course, Leslie Stahl. She told the president, that's not true. I couldn't believe it didn't ask you that. Yeah. Well, you really studied. I did, and I'm not even through with the list. Oh, my. Yeah. All right, Betty, we finished the game, and now it's the part of the show where we usually play pre-recorded Betty introducing our best things segment. But now you can do it live because you're here. Great. Go ahead. Every week we ask listeners to send in the best things that happen to them. Let's take a moment and listen to... You know what? I'm sorry. I don't have the script in front of me. It was close (laughs) enough. They get it. They get it. Try it again, but that was close enough. Okay. Every week, we ask listeners to share the best things that happen to them. We ask them to brag, and they do. Let's take a listen to some of those submissions from this week. Hey, Sam. This is Anna calling from New York City, where the greatest part of my week was running the first day of the New York City Virtual Marathon, and I feel great. Hey Sam, this is Graciela from New Mexico. The best thing to happen to me all week was that I just finished an eight-mile run to celebrate passing the New Mexico bar exam. Hi Sam, this is Andrea in Pittsburgh. And the best part of my week was realizing after working from home for seven months that I can order pizza for lunch and no one can stop me. I I mean, how am I just realizing this? Hi, Sam. This is Deborah in Walnut Creek, California. On July 9th, I donated a kidney to someone that I didn't know. I'd been on the donor list since January, was delayed for a few months because of the pandemic. And then goodness overcame evil and uh, a match was found and my recipient is doing great. I am doing great. And I just wanted to share our three-month anniversary of a new life for him. So just wanted to give a wahoo for a little bit of happy. Thanks, Sam. Hope you're doing well. Love the show. 
Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for your show. Bye. Shout out to marathons and pizza and saving lives. Wahoo. Thanks to those listeners you heard there. Deborah, Andrea, Graciela, and Anna. Listeners, you can be a part of this segment. Just record the sound of your voice onto your phone, sharing the best part of your week. Send that to us at any point throughout any week. Just email it to samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. This week, the show was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Star McCowan. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hokeman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. And our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, stay safe, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We will talk soon. For the seventh year on the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity go way beyond the day's headlines. Because we know what's part of every person is part of every story. We're bringing that perspective with new episodes every week. Listen on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR.